Will you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. And the fellows are coming to the front, and then they're going to make their way to the back with Bibles in hand as they make their way back. If you'd like a Bible, then get their attention. They'll get one to you so that you can follow along as we look at 2 Corinthians 5. Those Bibles are marked at the passage we'll be considering, and those are our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of Scripture. If you don't need that, you already have one, just didn't have it with you, then leave it on the seat, and we'll use it for someone else next week. We're approaching the end of the Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year season. These special times are in some ways similar to birthdays and anniversaries in that they all serve as markers for us. That is, points in life that we remember and during which we often take stock of our own lives. So we say things like, you remember that one Christmas when we did or went? Or this is our first Thanksgiving in the new house. Or this will be our last new year here. Or more personally and painfully, this is our first holiday without... Uncle Joe. I still remember the first Christmas after my father died when I was 11. He was called home to Christ on October 27th. But in God's good providence, the first grandchild in our family was born just a few weeks later on December 7th. The birth of Heather to my older brother Randy and his wife brought great joy in the midst of deep sorrow that we were going through. And so our holidays not only commemorate a particular event, but they also serve as markers that we look back on and we remember, often joyfully, sometimes painfully. The New Year's holiday is certainly a milestone, a marker. But it tends to mark for us where we are personally in our journey. What did I accomplish this past year? What do I hope to get done this coming year? And this inevitably then brings up the matter of priorities. I may have regret as I look at the past year because I failed to accomplish a task that was or perhaps at least should have been a priority for me. But priorities are more than just to-do list items that you finish and then you're done with. While those of us who have children might resolve in the new year to prioritize our kids by having more family time, none of us would come to the next year, look back, see that we did spend more time with the family and then check that off the list and forget about it. Rather, there are some things we need to initiate or reinitiate and then prioritize regularly, continually. These are the things that are most important. Rather than being merely tasks on my list, they are the real treasures in my life. And so, as we approach the new year, I ask you, as I ask myself, what are yours? What are your treasures? What or whom do you prize most? Now, most of us, especially being in a church setting, will offer good answers. Maybe things like family or health, and maybe even obviously spiritual answers like, my priority is to bring glory to God in the coming year. But wouldn't you agree that unless those things are given definition, they'll just remain abstractions for us? What does it mean to prioritize my family? 
What does it look like to pursue the glory of God in 2014? This morning, I want to suggest to all of us that the very best thing we could do this year and each year, because it's a treasure and not merely a task, is for us to prioritize the gospel as first importance. It is indeed the chief means by which all other things that are valuable are achieved. When I say the gospel needs to become most important, that it's the means of achieving all other things of value, that may not ring true to you if you're awake, if you're, if you're listening. It may not ring true to you, even if you've been a Christian for a number of years. You know, friends, it would be really easy for us to miss the point of a statement like that, that the gospel is the means of achieving all things that are of value. We could miss the point of that statement if we're not very careful. And that's because when we think of the gospel, we tend to think of the good news message about the person and work of Jesus Christ, his perfect, sinless life, his death on our behalf, and his free offer to apply both of those to us for the asking. But please hear this. The gospel involves not only the gift of heaven in the future, it involves a transformation in the present. That is a radical reordering of our priorities because it involves a new view of ourselves, of others, and of Christ himself. So when I say make the gospel a priority, I don't mean only to resolve to tell more people about Jesus Of course, that certainly would be included. But it also means to live out the implications of the fact that Christ died for me and that he lives for me. The truth of the gospel should result in a new and profound change in the way I view all of life, myself, others, and Christ. So that the gospel becomes, in the words of the title of today's message, And we have it for you at the top of the outline that we've inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look. A new agenda for a new year. And it really should be that same agenda every year for us. Today I want us to see from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, that indeed the gospel needs to be that new agenda for us. Notice verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you for this sacred moment to look into the pages of your sacred word. Grant us the ability to give our full attention. Grant me clarity of speech and thought. And Lord, open our hearts to be changed by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I said that. We're going to see that the gospel is to be our priority, but in that passage I just read, the word gospel is not even used. So where do I get that? 
Well, notice that verse 14 begins with, for Christ's love compels us, or because Christ's love compels us. And so that connects what follows with what precedes. And so I'd like to review what's said in verses 11 through 13 in just a bit, but I also want to point out the entire passage that I just read is surrounded by the gospel. This section and the passages before and after it focus on the gospel. So going back to chapter 4, if you'll just take a look at the prior chapter, verses 4 and 5. The light of the gospel displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach, that preaching is the gospel, what we preach is the gospel, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then after the passage that we're considering in verses 19 and 20 in chapter 5, It says, He has committed to us, in verse 19, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And so this entire context is about the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. Now, why is the one who wrote this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, Paul, why is he talking about, in verse 14, what compels him, that is, what motivates him? And in chapter 4, he's talking about the fact that he preaches the gospel not about or for himself, but rather for and about Christ. Why is he doing that? Well, it's because he is being accused. And the entire 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians are his defense of his own ministry and his motivation for it. So as you read through those 13 chapters, that's what you'll find, him defending himself against those who are saying he's not a very impressive guy. He's certainly not much to look at. Sometimes he speaks over our our heads. As we're going to see uh, from the verses in chapter 5, they make accusations about him being really out of his mind in some ways. And so all sorts of accusations are coming about with regard to Paul, and he's being unfavorably compared and contrasted to others within the church at Corinth who have insinuated themselves upon the flock that, as we will see, Paul himself founded by preaching the gospel and gathering believers into the church there. But they have since come and set themselves up as leaders. Paul calls them sarcastically in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, super apostles. I mean, I'm just your ordinary everyday apostle. Those guys are are super apostles. And so he's being accused, and 2 Corinthians is a defense, a defense of his message and a defense of his motivation. So verse 11 says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Since then. Again, connecting to what precedes. And what precedes in chapter 5, verse 11? Well, it's verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, We make it our goal. To please him. Verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done while in the body, whether good or bad. Verse 11 Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. The word fear in your Bible sometimes refers to trembling before a circumstance or before someone. But most often in the context of our relationship with God, it's, a, it's, an, it's an, an awe. 
It's a being filled with awe as we think about and contemplate the fact that we will stand before God one day and give an account. And Paul has just said in verse 10, we're all going to do that. As he thinks about the fact that he will one day give an account for what he has done with what Christ has given. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Then we try to persuade men. That's what verse 11 says. Now persuade them then of what? Well, it's to persuade them of the truth of the message, of the gospel message, but also in the context, since he's defending himself against these accusers and these super apostles, it's also to persuade them about his own authenticity. What we are is plain to God, he says in verse 11. We hope that it's plain to you as well. So he's seeking to persuade men, yes, of the truth of the gospel, but also of his own genuineness in the ministry that he's carrying out. And then in verse 12, he says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Do you see this kind of accusation that you'll find throughout the 13 chapters? Paul's not very impressive. He's not as, he's not as cool as we are. He's not one of the super apostles. And so here he is saying, but they focus on on what is seen, externals. That's how they choose their leaders. That's who they want you to to follow. But they don't see what it is that that motivates us and don't care to see what it is that motivates us. And in verse 12, he implies, Paul who wrote this, implies that the people to whom he's writing, these Christians, should already know about the genuineness of his motivation and his ministry. Because he says in verse 12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you. Notice, again, we've already been commended to you. (laughs) We've already had ministry among you. And you should know and remember that ministry. Now, when did that ministry occur? If you care to jot down Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 records for us the ministry that Paul had in the city of Corinth. The Bible tells us that Paul went to Corinth. Every Sabbath, the Bible says, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, that is, Jews and Gentiles. He devoted himself to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And then that narrative goes on to tell us in Acts chapter 18 that the Jews rejected his message. He said, I will will then go to the, the Gentiles. And so it then goes on to say he preached to the Gentiles. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. Now when he writes this second letter to them and has to defend himself, he is saying, I'm not trying to commend myself to you again. You should already know my ministry. You've already seen it. But what I am doing, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 5, is giving you ammunition against those who make accusation against me. He's implying that I shouldn't have to remind you of this, but I am, so that you can withstand the charge that they are making. Paul spent a year and a half with them. In that story in Acts chapter 18, it tells us that there he met two Christians, two who became Christians, Aquila and Priscilla. Many of you know this this couple, this husband and wife. And you know that they became great fellow travelers with, with Paul. And they even endangered their own lives for the sake of the gospel. 
But Acts chapter 18 tells us something about them. They were tent makers, as was Paul. It says, like he was. And so they became fast friends in the gospel, first of all, but also in their trade. And it was by their own hands that they made their living as they gave the gospel and edified, built up this group of new believers in the city of Corinth. And now, years later, he's having to write to them to defend himself, his message and his motivation. And that's why, back in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17, he says this, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And then in verse 13, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. But in no case is it for us. In no case is the gospel that we proclaim about us. It's about God and it's about you. So you say, I must be out of my mind. Apparently some were saying that. Who would do the kinds of stuff this guy does? He's crazy. And Paul says, it's all for God. And then if I am in my right mind, in fact, so much so that I bring rational arguments to you, and sometimes it appears to be over the head of some. He'll say elsewhere in the letter, what we have written to you is, should be clear. But even if that's the case, our motivation is it's about God and it's about you. It's not about, it's not about us. And then that brings us to verse 14. For Christ's love, because Christ's love compels us. So in verse 13, he's saying, in effect, I can't, I can't win. I'm condemned if I do. I'm condemned if I, if I don't. But here's what I know for sure that I am motivated, I am compelled by the love of Christ to give you the gospel, to do what I do, because I, Paul, have experienced a radical transformation in my thinking about myself, about others, and about Christ. And that's why we say then in your outline, conversion to Christ involves these things. Conversion to Christ, first of all, creates a radically different view of ourselves, a radically different view of ourselves. This radically different view of ourselves means that we, like the great apostle, ought to no longer be the center of our own agenda. And for Paul, he's no longer the center of his agenda. In verse 15, he says, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for them who died for him who died for them and was raised again. So we're no longer, like Paul, to be the center of our own agenda. Now, in fact, this transformation took place because, as he says in verses 14 and 15, because Christ died. And when Christ died, those of us who are in Christ died with him. We died to the penalty of sin, thanks be to God. But we not only died to the penalty of sin, but we died to the self-centered agenda that we bring into this life because of the sin nature that each of us has, all focused on me. And so in the book of Colossians, in the book of Romans, and throughout Paul's writings, he talks about the fact that I have died with Christ, and those of us who are in Christ died with him. 
As an example of that, we have Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's a radical transformation now in the way he thinks because he has died to the penalty of sin, but he has also died to the self-centered agenda he once had. And he, throughout his writings, talks about the self-centered agenda that he had. (laughs) He was very proud of his own resume. He was a guy who had it all together, religiously speaking, intellectually speaking, educationally, academically speaking. In fact, he says this in Philippians chapter 3. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. goes on to say this, though. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider those things. I consider my own resume garbage that I may gain Christ. And so... The gospel results creates a radically different view of ourselves such that we, like Paul, no longer are the center of our own agenda. There's one who died for all, the Lord Jesus, says Paul. So all are to live for the one. And only those who live, verse 15, that those who live, only those who have then made, been made spiritually alive and now live for a transformed goal. Only those who live, having been regenerated by God's Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, will live for the one who died for them. And that only happens when they too hear the gospel. So that sets the agenda then for me. I've been transformed, says Paul, by the gospel. It's changed the way I view myself. And it's changed as well as we're going to see the way I view other people. Because those other people need the transformation that only the gospel can bring as well. And so let me ask you, as we enter 2014, how do you view yourself? And what's most important? Is it my agenda or is it Christ's gospel-centered agenda? As you think about 2014, are you thinking about your portfolio? You know, and as you, and as you, do, as you do your finances and all that, you know, just bear in mind, dear, dear brothers and sisters, we can baptize anything, can't we? We can, all, we can always make it sound really Christian. So, you know, I, I just am worried, I'm concerned about my portfolio so I can serve God in a greater way. That may be. God is... God is I'm no, I'm no one's judge. I am simply saying to you as I say to myself, be careful, be very careful that you don't rationalize your own agenda by baptizing it, by using spiritual words. You thinking about your portfolio? You thinking about your own happiness? Your health, your children, your hobbies? These are all fine things. None of them are sinful. But none of them are the top priority. The top priority 
is the gospel and the transformation that it alone brings from a self-centered agenda centered on, on me to, as I say in your outline now, becoming a servant of God's agenda. So I'm no longer the center of my agenda because of the transformation of the gospel. I'm a servant of God's agenda. Verse 14, Christ's love compels us. When it says compels us, it literally means crowds in. That's literally what the Greek word that's translated compels means. Crowds me in. So that I have now really no other option. Christ's love now crowds me in so that the only option I have now is to preach the gospel and to continue to follow his agenda rather than than my agenda. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, autobiographically he said, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's to be the kind of agenda we're to have for 2014. Now what would keep us from doing that? Well, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus... Forgive the grammar, you ain't going to do this. So we'll give you an opportunity at the end of our time for you to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers that gift to you. So if you don't have that, that will keep you from doing this. But there are lots of reasons that would keep otherwise, otherwise profitable Christian people from pursuing Christ's gospel-transformed agenda. One of those I'm finding in increasing fashion as I seek to minister to God's people, is that we have not put our past in the past. And therefore, it keeps us from living in a transformed way for Jesus in the present. Too many of us are carrying around baggage from the past. You know, friends, you're, you are a product, I am a product of nurture, our experiences, our upbringing. We are each a product of nature, the kind of person we are, the kind of personality we have, but also our sin nature. But thanks be to God, in the gospel, I'm not only a product of nature and nurture. I'm a product of God's grace as well. And you understand, dear friend, that our God can redeem and desires to redeem your past. So that by the transforming power of the gospel, you no longer see yourself as you did. You no longer see others as you once did. But now because of God's grace, He's redeeming what has happened. He's redeeming what you've done. So that in the present now, you can live a fruitful, God-centered, gospel-centered life. Our past defines a number of things for us. Our gifting the kind of person that we are and what we're able to do. But it also helps define our struggles as well. But we're to bring those struggles to the gospel. And we're to be transformed. The way we look at ourselves and the way we look at those things and what God has for us now in using those things in fruitful service for Him in the present. That's what Paul did. And he said, I put the past then behind. So he had a radically different view of himself. No longer the center of his own agenda, rather a servant of God's agenda. That's what we're called to in 2014. Secondly, in your outline, the gospel creates a radically different view 
of others. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. When it says worldly point of view, it's literally to see the outward appearance, to see the face. And remember back in verse 12, that's exactly what he accused his detractors of doing with regard to him. But unlike them, I've been transformed by the gospel, and so I don't see people the way I used to. I don't see people as impressing me in the way that I did before I was transformed by the gospel, by their status of whatever type, Jew or Gentile, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. There are no racial barriers in the gospel. I'm just going to move on with that, but we all agree with that. Amen, brother. No racial barriers in the gospel. Lord, help you, dear friend, if as a Christian who professes the gospel, you disparage others of another race. And I hear from time to time, I will hear Christians do that kind of thing, professing Christians. There's no place for that in a gospel-transformed agenda. We view others in a radically different way. And not by position. And not by the things that the world sees on the outside that cause them to gravitate toward someone and reach out toward someone. So people then... Just like I am no longer the center of my agenda, I say in the outline, they are no longer the center of my agenda either. They all fit into one of two categories, believer or unbeliever. One who has been transformed by the gospel or not. There are only two categories of people, dear friend. And that is what the gospel then transforms our thinking, to look at people in that way. Those who need the gospel and those who need to grow in the gospel. And so people are no longer the center of my agenda, whether, now hear this, whether in anger or vengeance. Do you see what I mean by that? They're no longer the center of my agenda. You say, what does that mean, anger or vengeance, and them being the center of my agenda? There are people who are controlled by other people, others, because of their anger at them or their vengeance toward them. You may be sitting here right now, and in fact, somebody else's agenda has become yours because of your deep-seated anger and desire for vengeance. Or, if not anger or vengeance, on the flip side, need. I am subservient to the agenda of someone else rather than Christ and the gospel because I have become so needy and so dependent upon this person. I'm here to tell you, dear friend, that according to the authority of the Word of God, there is one person ultimately that we all need, and it's the Lord Jesus. And many of us, to use the psychobabble labels, have become codependent. So much so that we need people much more than we love them. And what the gospel does is free us to love people more than we need them. It's a radically different view of others. So that I'm no longer the center, they are no longer the center of my agenda, but I say in the outline, they, they are to become the servants of God's agenda. So just like you and I are no longer to be pursuing our own self-centered agenda, but rather God's agenda, they too now need to move from 
being the center of their agenda or the center of yours to become the servants of God's agenda, which means they need the gospel, and that's the way you need to view them, and that's the way Paul viewed them. So Paul is saying, like me, they are the products of of nurture and nature, and if Christians, they are the products of, of grace. And so here's what that means. The gospel sets the agenda for me. For those who don't know Christ, they need to hear the gospel and be transformed by it. For those who have been, they need to to grow in it. And then that grace that comes through the gospel changes the way I interact and view people. Here's how. It means now I can bear with them. And I can accept one another. I can forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me. It transforms the way I see people. I can love them more than need them. No longer the center of, they are no longer the center of my agenda. I desire that they become the servants of God's agenda and I interact with them accordingly. I see them the way Jesus did. Matthew chapter 9. The Bible says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Paul saw people as as needing the gospel. He saw people as needing to grow in the gospel. And it transformed the way he interacted with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, his first letter to this church at Corinth, he says this, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. The gospel creates a radically different view of ourselves. Radically different view of others. And thirdly, it creates a radically different view of Christ. Verse 16, from now on we regard no one with regard to position, with regard to outward appearance, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And you know the career of Paul, and you know that he viewed Jesus as a failure, an abject failure. Someone who had been, who had been hung on a cross, he viewed him as one who was cursed. He's a loser in Paul's mind, pre-conversion. But then he's transformed by the gospel And he comes to realize that, yes, he was cursed on the tree, but by God's design, who it pleased God the Father to bruise him for the sins of others as he bore in his body our sins upon the tree, the Bible says. And so he has now a radically different view of Christ. And I say in your outline, now Christ is no longer the servant of my agenda. (laughs) Yikes, that's a whole sermon. But really, I said earlier, you all know how easy it is to baptize what we want to do in our own agenda. It's so easy to invoke Jesus to bless our own agenda. And that's why I say here, he's no longer the servant of my agenda. Just think about how you use Christ. How I tend to use Christ. I call on him when I think I need him. Let me ask you, friend, how often do you need Jesus? 
But many of us just call out to Him when we're in trouble or when we think something needs to change or it's not to our liking. And Christ is really the servant of our agenda. How do you know He's become the servant of your agenda? Well, lots of ways. (laughs) When you become angry at Him because the agenda is not going the way you've outlined, then you can know for sure that Christ has become the servant of your agenda. We have a radically different view of Christ now because of the transformation of the gospel. We are now, he has now become the servant, the center, excuse me, of my agenda, as I say in your outline. So who is he now? How should I really see him? Well, the Bible gives us a number of titles for him that when we think about Christ, we should see him as. Titus chapter 2, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is none other than God himself. He is not my waiter. He is not tending to my agenda. He is Almighty God. Colossians chapter 1, in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I quoted Titus chapter 2 on the screen just a moment ago. It says He's our great God, but it also says this, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God, and He's our Savior. He's our God. He's our Creator. He's our Savior. When the risen Lord showed Himself to doubting Thomas, you remember in John chapter 20, and Thomas realized that this is truly Jesus, this is truly the one who was crucified, now been made alive. And here's Thomas' response. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord... And my God. He's our God. He's our creator. He's our savior. He's our, he's our Lord. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's why in that passage in Galatians 2 that I quoted earlier, where Paul says about himself, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He says this at the beginning of that passage. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I am now about Christ's agenda, not mine. And so we are to do this then. If he's really all of that, and he's all that, then if we've been transformed by the gospel, we're to seek to please him to him. And we're to seek to model Him to others. We're about Him. We're about His agenda. Let's now with our lives seek to please Him before Him and model Him before others. Now, we're almost done. But Paul understood this whole idea of the transformation of the gospel and what it means then about how he views himself, how he views others, how how he views Christ. And he has another passage where he talks about this transformation. I'm just going to I'm going to give it to you on the screen. Let's give you a few comments about it because our time is gone. But I encourage you to take a look at it this coming week. In 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote to these same people, chapter 4, he says this, I care very little 
If I'm judged by you or by any human court, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And you got, in those two verses, you got all three of those elements. How he views himself. I can't make an accurate judgment about myself. How he views other people. I care very little about what other people think. I'm not serving other people's agenda. What really matters is how the Lord sees me. And it's the Lord, he says, who judges me. And the word that's translated judges me is the same word for justifies me. It is the Lord who justifies me. It is the Lord who declares me innocent before him because of the blood and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. The perfect life of Jesus, the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf, and now I don't see myself in the mirror judging myself. I can't do that. I don't build my esteem of myself based upon what anyone else says about me. What really matters is what Christ says of me. And he has declared me righteous because he lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. That's the good news. The good news should transform us in 2014. Give us a radically different view of ourselves, of others, and of Christ. So here's what I encourage you to do, friends. As I encourage myself to do this coming year, the bottom of your outline. Recognize God's grace in your life. I would encourage you to do this. I've been doing this with folks in counseling, and I counsel you to do this. Take the time periods of your life to, and, and, and lay out how God in his providence has brought events into your life during those periods. You know, just lay out a timeline, 0 to 5, 6 to 12, 13 to 18, 19 to 25. 26 to 35, and then go in 10-year increments after that. If you get past 100, you can give it up. Okay? And, then, and, then, and then write down, what, what's happened to me in my life? Now, some of those things are going to be painful. Some of those things are going to be marvelous. You need to understand that the hand of your Creator and your God and your Savior and your Lord was involved every step of the way. And his grace now, because of the transforming power of the gospel, is to redeem every one of those things. And as you then lay that out before you, I encourage you to ask yourself, how has this affected my view of myself? How has this affected my view of other people? How has this affected my view of Christ? And then see if it lines up with the gospel. Very often it doesn't. And that needs to be transformed in 2014. Recognize God's grace in your life. And having done that, then do the second thing. Respond to God's grace in your life. Respond. That response may be repentance. Oh, Lord Jesus, I've been carrying around anger and bitterness 
vengeance and unforgiveness, or I haven't seen myself accurately from your perspective with the freedom and the forgiveness that I have in Christ. It may require, it may require repentance, but it may require that I begin to use now what God has given through all of those circumstances that He has redeemed through the gospel by His transforming power. I may, the response may be, I need to use those things now to the glory of God in His service of the gospel. So respond to God's grace in your life, and then lastly, reflect God's grace in your life. Reflect it to others with your mouth. Give the gospel. But by the model of your life, show the gospel. Recognize His grace, respond to it, and reflect it. Let's as a church commit to do that in 2014. I said a bit ago, if you don't know Jesus, none of this matters. Here's how you get to know Jesus. He offers to you for the asking. This transformation, because he lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you deserved. So here's what you do. Realize that you have sinned against the holy God. Recognize that Jesus is the answer to that sin by his life and his death. Repent. You have been handling things your own way. You are going to follow your Lord, your Creator, your God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to go His way. That's what repentance means. No longer my way, your way. Receive Jesus Christ in your life. When we bow in your own words from your heart to God, acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need the forgiveness and the acceptance that only Jesus can provide. He lived for me. He died for me. I ask you to take me and transform me. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this sacred time. And Lord, as we are on the precipice of a new year, help us, Lord, yes, to look back, but only look back in order to look forward. And as we look back, help us to see your work in our lives. Help us to see how the gospel transforms all that's happened in our lives, the good and the bad and the ugly. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who came into this room without a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ, that right now your spirit is moving upon their hearts and you are drawing them out of the world and to yourself. May they become lips who sing your praises and lives that model your grace. And may we as your church in 2014 and beyond be people who with our lips give the gospel and with our lives model that gospel. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.